where investment dollars meet insanity. This is The Really Really. This is being recorded in Eavesdrop Studio in Boise, Idaho. Just as we recorded our first podcast, there's a nice little space here on Maple Grove. Great microphones, great editing. Uh, Highly recommend that you check that out if you're interested in starting a podcast in Boise. So we released the first episode and we sent that to some people who we thought might be interested in it. And that included some investors, some entrepreneurs, some people involved in startup ecosystems, and some people who we thought were just generally interested in the kinds of things that we're talking about. And we got some great feedback and a lot of it was uh, good feedback, right? Yeah, I think everything was everything was really good and constructive and some of it was really aggressive. Which yeah. I think that was warranted, probably. Right. Yeah. And so I've run, written down a list of the negative feedback and have yet to transcribe the good feedback. If if you enjoy our podcasts, then you can probably figure out what you like about it without us having to tell you. Something about the really, really is uh, could be really fun to be self-deprecating. Like we said before, we don't know everything. In no. fact, we know very little. We're two guys discussing things that our nuance, then we probably have only a a small grasp on. Completely. So we thought of that first episode as kind of a minimum viable product, right? That was our MVP. And I see learning from that as being crucial in business and in a podcast. Some things about the Really Really Project didn't really seem to be clear to everyone in that first episode. And obviously, we couldn't just guess what people were going to think about that. But this conversation is an opportunity for us to discuss some of that and maybe get a little bit more out there. Right. Absolutely. I think that the one thing that we didn't, this doesn't have really a defined audience, right? So it's part business podcast. It's part for ecosystem builders or company builders. But it crosses so many different spectrums of founder, investor, vendor. There's so many. And just in real life. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it will be hard to really nail down. This isn't like we teach you for 25 minutes about product market fit and regurgitate certain things that we read about product market fit. This is really about the nuance behind not just that kind of stuff, but just the experience altogether. Right. We're not we're not building a how-to guide on starting a company or investing in companies or building an <laughs> ecosystem. We are not. We this are is, not. There are plenty of resources like that out there. Plenty of, you know, 50-step lists and all sorts of support coming from the community, this is a conversation. But I think there were a lot of people that thought that was what it was going to be. Right. From just based on the feedback was, you know, well, I wish you would have went deep on that or I wish you would have done this. And this is our podcast. <laughs> you know, like if you can, there's a lot of stuff you can read about. And this is really discussing the entrepreneurial experience and really that journey uh, between founder, investor, family, you know, all the various many things that come into building a company. Right. And it's not finite either. You know, something something that somebody says they want to hear more about is a pretty good indication of something that we should probably go deep into in a future episode. Well, I was just enjoying your uh, looking at the business lessons of cats just here earlier. So it does go to, you know, the many, many pieces that we, you know, you won't find in a textbook. It's true. It's true. You have to earn the respect of cats. It's an important principle. (laughs) You do. That's what you're telling me. (laughs) It's an it's an economic relationship. I'll, I can just give you a couple things from my point, some of the feedback that I got, and I think that probably will trouble you some. And of course, you've already heard it because I've already given it to you. But having you know people say, as we in, in regards to the ecosystem of all this, you know, hearing things that like the ecosystem is bullshit, you know, that was set out, that was definitely said that way, and and there were 
quite a few other parts to that and people that were supporting that and maybe not a nice, not as an as aggressive way. Right. That that was something that multiple people said. And, you know, I, I could relate to that early on when I was a partner at Vinyl and we started investing some of our resources into ecosystem. I was, you know, I mean, our target clients were enterprises, right? I didn't really know exactly what impact startups would have for us. I mean, I have always considered myself to be an entrepreneur, but but the ecosystem itself didn't necessarily seem to be like a great point for us to get a good quick ROI out of, right? It didn't seem like a ripe opportunity for hardcore capitalism. Yeah, that really pissed people. Like just the term ecosystem pissed some people off, which I was actually a little surprised by um, about just how polarizing that word was to people. Yeah. What What do you think about that word is so polarizing to people? Like what what were people saying about it? What I was getting in broad strokes was that the vision of a combined ecosystem success, one or two stated goals, living harmoniously together prompted a lot of people to say, well, cool, but I'm building a company. Like, and if that company happens to fit into what you're calling an ecosystem, great. Right. But I'm not going to go out of my way to put extra emphasis on my competitor if that, you know, or another company next door that could be stealing resources from me. And I, and I think that's warranted, parts of it. Right, right. And another thing we got, sort of same sort of disagreement, but with different reasons. Uh, one person said, I like to focus on specific entrepreneurs, right? Which is kind of like a familial sort of bias. It's like... You know, if I know some people who are entrepreneurs who I think are great, then I want to support those. And I don't really care about necessarily building the ecosystem at large. Yeah, that which, was that's the broad. Yeah, totally the broad strokes that I was getting to. Yeah. Which I don't know. Like, I mean, how do you feel about that? I feel like this is kind of where our own unique point of views may differ a little bit. So I'd love to hear. I mean, I think you have a better, more idealistic vision of this ecosystem. You've been mentioning specifically local government involvement. And I, that never crossed my mind, but that's not that I'm right. Right. Well, I mean, when we talk about public-private partnerships like Trailhead, like yeah. that is in part government taking a little bit of a position or a little bit of a stake in building a startup community. You know, for me, I, yeah, I have an idealistic vision, not only about the business community, but about humanity at large. And in a society run by capitalism, those two, as far as I'm concerned, are inextricably linked. Dom, would you measure ecosystem success by the number of exits it's produced? Would you measure it alternatively by how many founders are giving options away in a, in more abundance? Like, I guess what would, maybe that's a better way to think about it is how would you personally measure success in a air quote ecosystem? Right, and for me, what I've come to over the years is I want it to be more likely for an entrepreneur to take the plunge and more likely that they're going to get success out of that having started in a particular community. I think that is, that's the goal that I'm looking for. And, you know, whether that's being measured very well right now is, is questionable. And I don't know if that in particular is the target of a lot of different people, but I think when it comes to business and entrepreneurship, it means for me, it means class mobility. It means being able to create the American dream for yourself, right? And 
if we were in a place where it was harder to get the results that you hope to out of entrepreneurship, then that would be a problem. And so I see community building as building a bridge for people to actually mobilize their lives and build something. Yeah. And I, I think I agree with part of it. I guess I would say I tend to, in, in this sort of, again, didn't realize how crazy everyone would be about one word, but they were. Um, I would, you know, really the way I thought about it was I'm definitely about by number of exits because I just do believe that that number of exits from a sort of city view or if you're looking at us as a either Boulder or Austin, like that's how they keep, that's I think how most people will keep score. I think that in within right underneath that topic, I think then it goes to founders and, and the way that they use their equity with the with the options. As you talk, you know, how do we measure the quote air quote ecosystem and that would a lot of people were saying hey well i think that a good metric for that might be you know as companies grow and they become more successful and they get through the a round that how many what what portion of the company are they willing to give to their employees in in equity or in by the way of options and i guess that's why a lot of people and i think i agree with them is that once a company exits those options make employees at every single level in the chain wealthier or very wealthy. And then those people go out and use that money traditionally, or they usually don't just stop company building. They usually start their own. And, and that starts to produce kind of built in capital resources for a particular place. Okay. Got you. So following the chain down, you're saying a good goal for an ecosystem is to produce more exits and to get the result of that exit disseminated down like to founders and to the employees that work at those companies. So not just the founders don't just get rich, right? And so that all employee levels that have options in the beginning are also becoming rich. And I think right. that was, and I don't know the T-Sheet story very well, uh, Not certainly not well enough to make a judgment. Well, that's surely the the biggest criticism that they've gotten for that. That's all I heard or about that it. Matt yeah. has gotten right. for that. Was that, you know, that uh, only very, very few people really did well. Right. And I think that brings up a conversation about the fabled ecosystem is when the rubber meets the road, how much do you actually give a shit about the place that you're living in terms of what you are giving your employees? Right. And that's more of a question for you, I just think, because I think it'll be an interesting answer. Yeah. You know, for employee options, I think I, I, I have to think about them as compensation, right? Right. I can't. I'm probably never going to think about employee options as like community charity. Right. Because you can always like if you exit a company and you know you get you get a seven, eight, nine figure exit, then you can always choose to invest in other parts of the community in other ways. You can choose to invest in startups that do have options. You can choose to invest in all sorts of things from there. So I, I guess I don't see it as being the only channel to that, but I do know that that's thought of that that employees who have options, being part of an exit and getting, you know, six, seven figure checks as a result of that, then starting their own startups is a fundamental part of how startup ecosystems are thought of in a lot of cases. Or it's it's at least something that has been pointed to as essential, an essential cycle of startup ecosystems. I think that giving employee options as compensation is something to motivate employees and and keep them on the team and keep them like motivated toward the same common goal that you're in and 
maybe even give them a silver lining if the company is bought by a conglomerate. I think that is good. But just the same, I think that entrepreneurship itself and the pathways that we take businesses through should inherently have benefit to communities and to employees. Like relying on the option pool as the seed for future companies. I think it's just one of many pathways and it's maybe not the, the one that we can have the most influence on as community builders. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I can see that point. I, I do personally think that options are, you know, especially in the beginning, they are extremely important because in lieu of, in lack of cash, you have a lot, you know, a lot, especially in the, in the Bay Area, a lot of people are working for options, predominantly, you know, by and large, especially with the cost of living there. And I would say that I think that was part of the cool thing that at least I've heard from the Cradle Point exit was the amount of new money, new wealth that was created through that. And I guess I think about the option part and the employee part, especially in the, in, you know, keeping everybody mission focused and that people are not, uh, I, I'm always shocked by what people are actually motivated by and how oftentimes it is not money. In a lot of ways, it is partnership. In a lot of ways, it is sort of shared success, shared, you know, that shared goal and vision. And I've seen, at least mostly post-COVID, companies that didn't really have that big, audacious goal to rally their employees behind. Those companies seem to have really, really had a hard time. And I can tell you from being in the alcohol business, I don't, I don't, I rarely drink. And I can tell you that when days suck in the booze business, they really suck because there's not that extra purpose of mission. There's not that extra big problem you're solving. And I think that that has some relevance, especially in kind of that second, third, and fourth tier of employees. I think that I agree with them that the option part of it and what a founder and sort of founding team and board and investors are willing to set aside for options is a strong indicator of how much they believe in the people that work for them. Right. Well, it's certainly, I mean, it's a lot more powerful to say, like, we're rowing this ship in this direction for us rather than you're rowing this ship in this direction for me, right? Right. Oh, yeah. I think I, I'm not anti-options at all. Yeah, it didn't sound like that. No, but in the conversation about community, I think about, like, what can we do? Right. And when looking at it through that lens, looking at options, like is motivating founders and CEOs to give options to their employees what the community is going to need in order to grow? You know, community and startup ecosystem, I have to think, are linked at some point. But to me, they are not exactly the same. I don't know. I think that's what part of the, the polarization over ecosystem was was am I talking specifically about a handful of companies racing towards an exit and supporting them? Or am I talking about a handful of good companies racing towards an exit and then an also crop of businesses that are failing and then a whole bunch of new entrepreneurs that are trying to pick an avenue, like who to model and who to go after? I think that that was part of the reason why that became so polarizing was that there wasn't, that's a very, very broad stroke when we say ecosystem. Right. So, okay, so just differentiating terms, startup ecosystem, that would be the investors and the companies that consider themselves to be startups and then like whatever organizations exist to like 
help the growth of those two entities, right? And then community, you're saying community would just largely be like the city, like the general population. Yeah, I'm just saying that I think that people, the reason it had such a weird reaction in people is I think I, it was a different definition for everybody. Right. And that that's kind of, you know, and we can, we can move on from that topic. I think we'll continue to discuss nuances of that as we go. I can tell you one thing that I've learned from the first one that I didn't really notice that I had done, but I notice it now. Boise versus Boise. That's it's a true. big fucking deal here. It's a big deal. We got Holy some smokes. we got some feedback. You were saying Holy Boise. Yeah, you oh. were saying Boise in the previous one. Honestly, I don't care. I think you should keep saying Boise. Oh, like I'm if, absolutely going to keep saying Boise. <laughs> if you were going to move to Manchester, right? Then it wouldn't be expected that you would say it with a British accent, right? Like Manchester in the middle of your American <laughs> totally. sentence, right? I, <laughs> yeah. I don't I think I think that there's a lot of strife in Boise in particular about like people coming in from out of Boise or out of state and like getting involved with our stuff. Generally, I think that that is a good thing. I mean, I think that's a symptom of having something that other people want. And generally, that's like a good indicator of what one has. But there's a lot of you know, I was here first and there's a lot of, of nativism that yeah, it really brought out some things in people that is, and I grew up in a town called Norfolk and people would argue, and Hey, I may have said that wrong right there, but between Norfolk and Norfolk, and it would piss it, the amount of people that pissed off and the debates that happened because of that are, you know, it's like, we could have probably spun up five nonprofits and done something <laughs> so much better with the time and resources than debating right. Boise. Versus Boise. Right. It's just this subtle sort of petty difference. And it's kind of, you know, it's it's not really taken to be such a big deal. It's it's like, you know, it's just kind of like said with a smile, right? Kind of tongue in cheek, like, oh, you must be from out of town. You said Boise. Which is a very passive aggressive way of saying <laughs> fucking outsider. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah, it does contribute to a rhetoric about like insiders like deserve something different than outsiders who are coming to town, which... You know, living in a place that is so rapidly growing as Boise, I think that we should just accept and let people say it however they want to. But, you know, thank what, you. But once again, <laughs> I see people, you know, people are going to be reluctant to give up the power of having been here before other people that moved here, right? They're, yeah. They're going to be reluctant to give up that insider status and, People are just inherently subconsciously or otherwise going to be motivated to like make that a premium. Yeah, no, I, I think in a, in a world that's pushing, certainly a country that's at least attempting to push towards more tolerance, I'm going to say Boise. I'm going to say Boise if I want to say Boise. All right. Done. You can do it. I, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll continue, you know, as I'll be influenced to be more nativist, but right now I'm staying. I, as a Boise area native, accept the way that you Thank mispronounce you. You. the city's name. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> we put that to rest now. Okay, great. Let's talk about some other feedback we got. A lot of people said that 80 minutes was too long. First episode was, was an hour and 20 minutes long. What do you think about that? Yeah. Of all, the, of all the different feedback we've got, I think that's the one that I am particularly open to. I think that I happen to be a podcast listener and I happen to, when I'm working, like to have things loud, noise, um, and I think so. I listen to Joe Rogan, and so I don't. 
and if it's a, an engaging topic, I don't mind spending a couple hours throughout the day kind of tuning in and out of that. But as it applies to this, I mean, I want it to be, I want us to have that honest conversation that you and I started this with. I don't want to lose that. I also don't necessarily believe in a world that nuanced topics are confined to 200 characters. That said, I want people to you know, not, not be overwhelmed by the length. That was our first kind of organic conversation. And I think even though it was long, what it did was it gave plenty of topics for people to weigh in on. And, and I think we can, we will try to keep them shorter. Right. I think, you know, when we were talking about this initially offline, we talked a lot more about making the conversational pace and format a lot more like Joe Rogan than like Gary V. Joe Rogan has three hour long episodes on average and Gary V has like 25 minute long yeah, episodes right. on average. Right. And so, you know, I'd rather have a conversation. I also think trying to can that conversation into too small of a, too short of a time period can also be kind of antithetical to the purpose of finding nuance, yes. right? Getting warmed up, getting into it, exposing the issues, and then like trying to find the like nuanced details between those issues. But at the same time, like a lot of the people that we're making this for, or in my mind, the, the people who are the audience for this podcast are busy professionals, right? Yeah. They've got stuff to do. They do. And while I'm writing code, like there's no way that I can really listen to a podcast, but maybe while I'm doing design work or while I'm like working through a spreadsheet yeah. or a budget or something. But yeah. So, but I think there, I think we can have both. I think we can I have our cake We can totally make too. a concession here. Right. Yeah. We can, we can have shorter segments that we put out, right? We can do like, if we get into a conversation with a guest that runs long, we can make that a multi-part episode yeah. in like, 20 to 40 minute segments and then make it bite-sized for somebody who isn't ready to just be doing the same thing for, for an hour and a half. Okay. So we'll keep whittling it down. We don't want to lose what we think is important and engaging about the topic. I think for me, it was more about a medium where we had conversations about things that people don't like to talk about as it applies to company building. And that's not to educate people necessarily. That's This is not, in my opinion, some this is how you do it, and this is how I did it, and this is how you should do it. But really, to have a discussion, you know. Otherwise, what's the what you know the reason why we are you and I are different, um, and we're acknowledging that and bringing that meet together here, without exploring that a little bit. I feel like we, we we're sort of losing kind of what we started this for. And I some of the feedback I did get was don't conform, right? And that was actually said from a, a fairly a member at least here in the uh, local area that everyone knows. Sure. Yeah. Well, and just, you know, if you're building a software product or if you're making a beverage or if you're starting a podcast, like you're going to get all sorts of feedback from everybody and you kind of have to, like, I'm planning on deciding based on the feedback that comes in, like, okay, this piece of feedback does speak to our mission. This piece of feedback is antithetical to our values. So like, you know, if, if we can't do what we intended to do and some of the feedback goes against that, then it's possible that that person's not in our audience. And it's also possible that sticking to our format and ignoring that feedback will help us be more valuable to, to the people who, who do come to be in our audience. Yeah, I think that that's a good way. We'll, we'll continue to keep, you know, like we've committed to a block of, you know, doing four of these if that makes it, uh, if we can continue to keep engaging topics and bringing people on that people want to hear from. But I think one thing I did hear unanimously across the board was when we talked about mental health. 
And that is something that I want to spend just a few minutes on in this, in sort of this you know, rehash of what we didn't do well podcast um, is mental health. And I think we can have an episode designated to it, but I also think it's important to bring that out in the conversations that we have and to add a nuance of that. The holidays suck for founders. The, I mean, that's a lot. There's a lot of time to sit and think, and I've seen it and I've been through it. And last year I really struggled with it. And I think that at least the reason why I wanted to launch this now was that we might be there for people going through that. Mental health is even a topic today that uh, our offices at the beautiful Trailhead North. I was I was engaging with a couple other people that were up there about what role mental health, how much priority they put on them on mental health for their employees, how much put they put on for themselves, and and you know how much they believe it sort of potentially decides who who fails and who doesn't. Right. And I think that my founder founders last time I said we're all kind of messed up. I don't know if that's the right way to put it. I mean we could probably say that, but we are we're pursuing a life that is incredibly hard. Or otherwise everyone would do it. And I think you have to have a sense of crazy to to really dedicate your life and to make the sacrifice and and take the risks for yourself and on your family and to sort of bring something into the world, and I, and that's where I don't. I believe that only a very few amount of founders start businesses to make a ton of money. Right. Yeah. I think I think the lifestyle, and I mean, for me, just the notion of doing something challenging and succeeding at it is, you know, I think a good enough thing to spend one's time doing. I think the first episode would have been a better opportunity for us to unravel mental health a little bit more, but I I think we'll get to do it a lot more in future episodes as well. You know, personally, I I spoke to a therapist uh, six or seven years ago, and this stood out. I asked him, why do I have so many things to do and I can't force myself to do even one of them right now? And, you know, we talked a little bit about my work life and my life in general, and the TLDR was just, you're burnt out, right? You can't do it. You, you, can't, you can't burn yourself out completely and continue to expect like perfect performance out of yourself, but you can learn to notice where the perimeters of your own capacity are. And you can train yourself kind of like an athlete trains to run a little bit faster every time between rests, right? You can train yourself to have a little bit more capacity, but ignoring one's capacity for like focus, for decision-making, for sitting at a desk and performing the same activity for 10 hours, those are all limits on us. And we can't do what we need to do in order to build companies and, and expand our skills without recognizing those limits and without taking some time to maintain ourselves. Yeah. I would ask, do you, is it something you, from a mental health perspective, do you currently invest in any therapy, executive coaching? Like, is that part of your schedule right now? Or do you envision it being part of your schedule later? It's, it's part of what I would idealize for my schedule. And, uh, it's, it's something that I should make time for. And it's something that I'm, I'm white knuckling on right now. Like I, I know that that's a deficiency in my life. And the closest thing I have to that is really just expressing my woes to my friends when they're not asking for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I think one of the most impactful things, and this is a, a story that uh, right as I was married and as I got married, I was from a, a very a mentor of mine who's extremely successful, has built giant private equity companies and certainly made investments and majority investments that you've all heard of. And he gifted me an executive coach for my wedding. And, you know, that's a weird thing. Like when someone that you respect and, and sort of idolize says, I, you need to here, I'm giving you access to one of the best executive coaches possible. Yeah. What did you think about that? I, it, it was met with mixed reviews. One, I was like, sweet, you know, he's investing in me. He sees potential and there's other side of me that's like, oh God, he maybe thinks I'm a little fucked up, which I was, <laughs> which I am. And I think that, but here's what I learned through it. The first counseling or the first session with my executive coach, who I still have to this day, by the way, and I, I credit anything, a lot of the success I would have and, and will have with him is we spent the, f I thought I was going to go in and he was going to teach me to be like a master of the universe. Like I was going to learn all this stuff that was going to make me just an absolute unstoppable monster business wise. And so I sit down and, and he starts going into talking about not just my dad, but his dad and his dad before that breaking down all the family tree. And I was like, Oh my God. Like, is this just for me? Like, is this, do I, am I getting another program that everyone else isn't getting? But the reality of it was, was the foundation we started on was massive to understanding my own beliefs, behaviors, and having been someone who's really a growth mindset junkie. Look, I, I can't emphasize how important that's been, especially even in, in my marriage and, you know, everyone outside relationships that don't have to be marriages, but friendships, family. He, he, you know, one of his first pieces of advice were, if your career goes up and your marriage goes down, this is a fucking failure. And I, and I believe that, like, I really looking back, like that was what people should hear because I think you could end up like Howard Hughes, you know, in a, in a giant house, drinking your own piss with no one there. And I think that happens. I think that when you put, you know, we all want to make money and, and have this large impact and all this success, but at least I believe that if no one's there to be there with you, it doesn't mean a lot. I don't want to end up like that. Right. Please, if you anyone hears this, like email me, Matt, at priceandpartner.com. Happy to connect you. Happy to even pay for one. Like, I really do mean it. It is one of the best things you'll ever do. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't think. Do you think mental health? Do you or do you think therapy has as much of a stigma now as it did ten years ago? No, no. I think that we have grown up in a generation that, at least ours, where with access to podcasts and the internet, self improvement is out there. And I think most of us, especially in entrepreneurship, want an edge, and right. we'll go after that edge. And it's so much more readily available to us for free through podcasts and through, you know, various mediums. I don't think that wasn't the case 20 years ago. Right. And I think it was more of a signal of weakness. And I think, and I would imagine, I, I wish, I wish it would have been around for everyone. Well, just, you know, just from a fundamental perspective, like we all have ideas, we've all got things swimming around in our own heads and to not get feedback on those ideas, to not get feedback on how you view the universe is hubris. Yeah, it does. I guess I would ask you, this is something I know I struggled with and I know 
every one of founders and, and even investors that I really respect, we all deal with imposter syndrome. Oh, and yeah. and I think how how do you, you know, being able to mute that, being able to really work through that and get around it or or harness it or whatever you have to do, I really think that that's sort of leads to some defining moments. And I'll give one example. Uh, the founder of LifeLock, Todd Davis, if you're familiar with LifeLock, the Sure. Oh yeah. You know, and uh, I know his social. You know his social, yeah. right? You know, he was struggling to get investment like by a lot and got that TV spot and just took that bold moment to say, you know what? Like if if I believe in me and I believe in this, I'm going to just I'm just going to say my number. I'm just going to say my number and I think they drove around the country with his social security number printed on the side of a bus eventually. Did they really? That's they that's made, my recollection. Oh, right on. But I, I think it's about that. I guess taking the he, he after at that point, he didn't he didn't need investment anymore. I mean, investors came to him, and I just think, how many moments do entrepreneurs, founders, really anybody in life, how many bold moments do we miss? How that we sh- that time we should have been loud, or that time we should have said what we thought. How many times do we miss that, and what did it cost? Yep, you got it. He did drive around with it on a bus. Right, he drove around with it on a bus. It worked. All, I, all I'm saying is that the imposter syndrome, I think, holds us back. I know it's, hold, it's held me back. No, From being true. that, you know, taking that chance. And even this podcast for the tens of people that might listen to it, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to put your voice out there and your thoughts out there. Right. And, you know, based on our feedback, like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> like, I, I do get it. But if anything else, like this is just continuously training to do that. Yeah, because I do believe in the things that you have to say are important. Things that I have to say are important, and the kind of the community at large of entrepreneurs. If they hear nothing else, we may be completely wrong about how deep to go or being too early. But let's not be wrong about mental health. Right. Let Let's not be wrong there. Okay. Yeah. Deal. We'll talk. You know, our next guest that we'll have on. You know, the founders of Simply Elope. Like I promise you, like that's a subject that's near and dear to their heart. Yeah. And I look forward to going through that with them. That's something we're going to get into with them for sure. Before we get into that, is there anything you wanted to take back from the last episode or anything you wanted to restate? Thanks, Tom. I do think I do. And I, as we talked earlier, you don't hear people making retractions, you know, very often, or if they do, they're forced to. And I think that part of the really, really is also about us admitting and saying, hold on, hold on. We weren't that that didn't come off that way or. That's not what I, I was wrong. And I do want to take something back. I thought, and it, I wasn't challenged on it either. But in the first podcast, I talked a little bit about, well, kind of went passionately about how I detest group pitching, group pitches. And I think I said that there was not, that wasn't a good way to build organic relationships with investors. I would take that back. I think especially I noted VC.org. As I remembered my experience with them, it's a perfectly good opportunity to build organic relationships with investors because they do offer mentors. In fact, I would say I would say VC.org is probably one of the better programs that an entrepreneur starting out should go through if they are going to raise capital. And I sort of just skipped over them like they were nothing. And I don't mean <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. That was not right. Right. Because the mentors in that program are a lot of them investors or a yep. lot of them no investors. Yep. Absolutely. I was passionately going up how much you know, I hate to be sold stuff. So, and that's, and that spills into group pitching, but that's a, a per, putting yourself out there per Todd and his, 
you know, social security number. I suppose getting up in front of a group is as good as as good as anything. Yeah. What about you? Anything you want to retract, come back on, reinforce? You know, you know, the biggest thing that comes to mind is that I invented a word in the previous podcast. I invented the term self hand, self self hand account, and that is not a real term. I meant to say first hand account. Why is Brett trying to trademark it right now? <laughs> I've already bought it on GoDaddy. You've already bought it? Yeah. Self. It can't be man. can't be stopped. Okay. It, it, there's no reason for that term to exist, and I, I would like it to unexist, but I can't take it back. It's out there. It's, it's, it's in ink. I would say that the feedback that I got was pr- particularly good about you. Um, I think that you brought, you came across one, you sort of made, seemed like you have a podcasting way about you. Uh, over you're very articulate and I think that when you represented certain things of the founder experience even I was kind of like holy smokes I didn't know that and specifically as you went into like the feeling that you need to be perfect for an investor or perfect pitching and I I really think not only did I appreciate it but I think there were some listeners out there that really thought like that vulnerability Um, it wasn't something that I would have would have thought and it's something I learned for sure yeah it's and it was really humbling to hear that feedback too for me because I mean to some extent I mean to some extent it maybe is obvious to everybody but maybe isn't spoken in those same terms or in the same terms that I think about it in my inner dialogue but you know even that getting getting that feedback and then coming into this session like I was experiencing quite a bit of imposter syndrome just right at the beginning not really like okay who how will I channel into being the person who got the feedback that was positive from the last one and then like just bring that from the beginning on this one i also think some of the feedback that we got um was about you should talk a little bit more about your backgrounds and i think some listeners were kind of seeking a little bit more credibility or validation about what they're listening to and who you're coming from and i kind of have a strong viewpoint on that and this was never about me or you necessarily it was really about the discussion right and in my mind if you listen to, you're going to be able to assess credibility by listening to it. Yeah. Now, of course, you can go look at my LinkedIn page. You can look at his LinkedIn page. There are there are resources there, but this isn't like we are we are anti grandstanding, anti self aggrandizing. Yeah. Did yeah. I hit it? That's the term. Aggrandizing. That's it. Self aggrandizing. It's got an A and a G. And, right and after the hyphen. And some other people said, you know, if we can keep this, no bullshit. And let, we can really get people on here that want to talk about it that way, that this becomes really interesting. And so just to kind of reaffirm that, it's not about if we can, I'm sure part of our stories will come out just in conversation. And But I'm sure we're both happy to share them offline. And But yeah. I, uh, yeah. I just didn't want to, I know you got it and it just, it didn't, it doesn't seem relevant to me. Right. So in, in my view, yeah, I got that feedback and, and I think you got it a little bit too. In my view, I do think it's important I, well, I just think there's like a human mechanism that wants to know that the person you're hearing something from is credible or to what degree they're credible, like which things they actually know about and which things they're just hypothesizing yeah. on. And, you know, if you're one of those people, dear listener, just consider that we're hypothesizing on everything Yeah, <laughs> and just uh, take it with a grain of salt. I mean, I think I think it is like a, if if I were to like rate us on a scale I would think that it's a little bit of a deficiency that we didn't like layer in a degree of credibility and background to gotcha. like help people trust us and like 
feel like they're right there with us in the beginning. But I think, like you said, our value of being, of keeping it real, of being against grandstanding kept us from giving intros and and pats on the back in the beginning of the last episode. And I think that we made the right decision. Maybe we went too far in that direction, but I'm fine with it. I can yeah. I can live with it. I can live with that. But I couldn't live with saying that we're anti grandstanding and having like two five minute bios. No, right, exactly. That's how I yeah. I couldn't. So I guess for all those people that wanted credibility, look, you know, LinkedIn is available to you. LinkedIn is available. And we will, I'm sure, bring out our own stories like we both have we discussed this week. We both have plenty of crazy stories that will scare people and yeah. and sort of lead, you know, uh, be alarming. The horror. Yeah. 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 There could be. And so I think, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how that all works out. But for right now, we just, we want to, we want to keep this no bullshit. Right. That's, that to me is the really, really. Yep. I uh, think so too. One thing I would take back while we're on that subject, um, as we talked about the nature of motivations of angel investors. Now, I did say that everybody has a somewhat different take on this. I mentioned things a lot about, you know, founders offering the, pitch or the deck as you know talk to someone as they're an incoming partner in the business i would only make one sort of level of clarity there that doesn't necessarily mean that's what an investor wants to be and that was some feedback we got right was that um i don't have time to be a partner in the business and i think that's fair right i would also but i the the point that i was getting at was i would love to see more honest discussion about the vision of the company both good and bad it, it wasn't necessarily directed at, you know, recruiting partners. Right. Yeah. I, I think that speaks to some of the nuance that we want to draw out. Like there are differences of opinion between investors, even investors who self-classify themselves in the same tier, right? Some early stage investors are going to be heavy handed and some are going to want to be completely hands off for a certain amount of time. And we should expose that. I, you know, I, I talking about community, right. And right. the ecosystem, I idealize maybe through this project coming up with a new format for doing that kind of thing, or at least, you know, discovering ideas that could lead to a new format for sharing an opportunity with investors and likewise investors sharing their paradigm, maybe a little bit more openly than in a group pitch. I think some people said, well, one person in particular said, I think that getting the community to agree on a common goal is a pipe dream. And to some extent, yeah, I mean, it is. We can't, we're not going to get every single person in the ecosystem to agree with a common goal, but building critical mass of people who do agree with that could be beneficial to the community and to individual opportunities in the system and to individual entrepreneurs. So I think it could accomplish a lot of people's goals to find just better answers. I totally agree. On just a little, I guess a little foreshadowing we have, um, we're actually going to have guests. It's not just us two. Yeah. You know, kind of going down rabbit holes that may or may not mean something to someone. Looking forward to having the founders of Simply Eloped on. Yep. Um, They are dear friends of mine. And they're sort of also masked in sort of this mysterious shroud around the community. And they will, without question, represent some contrarian views. One being... Fuck pitch decks. They don't do decks. And that's coming up soon. And that's coming up soon. Coming up next. Coming up next. <laughs>